Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams of the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Stefan von Gunten. He is the founder of Haute Reeve Watches. Stefan comes from a very accomplished background of microengineering and watchmaking at companies such as Patek Philippe, Gerard Perregaux, and Ulysses Nardin. Um, and now, Stefan, you have embarked on a solo journey. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome. So, a couple of years ago, you made the decision to start your own brand. It is not an uncommon decision for talented people such as yourself, but talk a little bit about the decision. You had worked very diligently at companies for many years, and then you decided to go on your own. Talk a little bit about that journey. Yes, it was not so many years ago. Actually, it was last year in uh, 2022. And um, because I read an article from a watchmaking book about... um, a family timepiece, so uh, a masterpiece that was made by the grandfather of my grandfather. Uh, it was a, a gift for the Pope in 1888. Wait, you're uh, you a family member? Yeah, yeah, sure. Oh. Um, it, it's, um, his name was Irene Aubry. Maybe, maybe I can start from another point. <laughs> He's the inventor of the Hebdomas watch. The Hebdomas watch was a... Uh, Eight-day power watch. People can't can see. see I can see it. So for those of you listening, um, there is a, a beautiful pocket watch that Stefan is showing me. And his, uh, his ancestor uh, not only made it, but invented it. And as he said, it has an eight-day power reserve. And it's a very good-looking watch. If you look at this dial, you'd actually see the inspiration for, I think, many watch dials today. Uh, so you, you are fortunate, of course, to have grown up where, in an area where your ancestors were watchmakers, correct? That's fully correct, yes. We, ha- we had um, watchmakers and engineers in my family, and I'm an engineer in watchmaking as well. So those are two different things, right? Like, do you need to be an engineer to be a watchmaker? Can you be a watchmaker without being an engineer? Talk a little bit about how those things are related and different. Yeah, you can you can do both actually, but uh, sometimes some um, some watchmakers have uh, want to 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 design the, the movements uh, themselves, and then they decide to to be to become an engineer. And sometimes you just start as an engineer, uh, as I did, and then uh, you focused on the engineering uh, aspects of the watchmaking. So it really depends. Yeah, I want to put it into some context for people because I think the educational element can be sometimes confusing. So there's there's watchmaking. And again, anytime here I'm incorrect, Stefan, please correct me. There's watchmaking, which is really the practice of assembling watches and understanding timekeeping theory, right? Like how a watch works and things like that. It's watchmaking as it's normally taught does not really involve creating new movements. That is the area of not just engineering, which is, again, another uh, skill altogether, but what they call micro-engineering, which is a specialized skill that doesn't exist all around the world. 
And of course, it's it's a, a specialty in Switzerland, not just for watchmaking, but for medical devices and, and other types of industries. But you have uh, within your, you know, within your own country, the ability to be a master in any of these areas, plus more, right? That's correct. Yes, you know the watchmaking world has always been linked to the micro technology because, uh, of course, we do micro mechanics and um, it gives the possibility to do other stuff than just uh, watchmaking. And this is why we are very linked to the medical industry, for example, and uh, to the micro technology such as uh, micro sensors using silicon technology. And this is uh, maybe. Um, good explanation of my background using silicon components into watches. Talk a little bit about that. Silicon is obviously a very uh, trendy material right now. You see it popping up all over the place. You worked at Ulysses Nardon that uh, around uh, 2000 or so came out with the Freak, which was you know, the the revolutionary watch when it came to silicon. Obviously, I don't need to tell you, but for people that don't know, this was the first movement that really was made from silicon parts. Um, and it was called the Freak because it was so, so controversial at the time. People thought it was weird, thought it was crazy. It made some people very, very upset. Talk a little bit about uh, what you guys did with silicon over at Ilsen Ardan. Yeah, the silicon is a very um, interesting material for um, engineering and uh, for watchmaking because it has very very nice spe um, uh, specifications. For example, it is very light and uh, for parts that uh, need to move quickly, then it's interesting to use silicon because the inertia will be, will be low. And so we can have a high acceleration using uh, silicon, for example. It is also non-magnetic, so it will not affect the rate of the watch if uh, the watch is close to a magnet or to a, to a device that will, uh, that will um, produce uh, magnetical uh, fields. So it, it has very interesting um, uh, specification and um, properties. I mean, the, another thing is the, the geometry that we can achieve using silicon because we can... Uh, because it is, it is a photolithographic uh, process, then we can make very uh, special uh, geometries using um, the silicon and uh, such as the, the air spring. So we can produce very uh, complex elements using silicon. And this is why um, what we did at Ulysnard at that time. We, the, the, fir the first parts were the, the two escapement wheels that are placed into the, the freak uh, movement. And then we, we came with um, with a silicon air spring that is uh, non-sensitive to the magnetical fields and to the to the uh, almost not sensitive to the gravity. So yes, it is an interesting material. Now, one of the major debates about silicon versus metal was that in the future, when silicon parts break, you would have to have very sophisticated machines to make new ones. Of course, they can't really be repaired. Whereas with metal, relatively basic machines can make new watch parts if you want to make one piece. Is, is this argument really correct in the sense that in the future, will it really be so difficult to make um, new silicon parts? Yeah, for me, uh, we, we will uh, do more and more silicon components. So I don't see that as, a, as, an, inch, as an issue. Of course, you need a specific machine for, uh, to etch the, through the silicon. But uh, this machine will be uh, 
I, I would not say they will be cheap. Of course, they are very expensive machines, but uh, I mean, we have more and more such machines uh, all, all over the, the world. So specifically here in Switzerland and in the US. And uh, um, so, so I don't think it's going to be a problem to produce uh, silicon components in the future. Of course, you cannot produce these parts in a, in a small workshop, in a small watchmaking uh, workshop. But um, you, I'm sure the, all the, the watchmakers will be able to buy such pieces in uh, specific factories. Do you, do you not think that maybe in 10 years' time there'll be hobbyist-grade silicon cutting machines? I mean, as you said, there, it starts with this wafer, and then there's yes. a laser cutter that cuts it. And, and I don't know enough about how these technologies to work, but I'm guessing that it's not the same laser cutter that cuts metal or wood or something like that. This is a very different type of process. Um, the parts are able to be cut very precisely, and very small parts and very complicated shapes, which is, I think, where some of the terms of like geometry comes in. What what are some of the other advantages? I mean, and, and why are we not yet at the point where we have entire movements made out of the silicon material? Yes, first first part of if your question is about the laser or micro-machining of uh, silicon, that's not um the, the the way we produce silicon components at the moment because it's not precise enough with the laser but uh, this and this is why we use a, a oh because you're right photolithography process. yes sorry sorry you're right no that's fine but just to say actually it's a good idea if we could use a, a laser then maybe um every watchmakers could have a, a small uh, laser machine on on his um in his workshop and uh, produce that'd be cool uh, right silica. yeah yeah of course even <laughs> for me i would love that and uh, then we could produce um, uh, tiny silicon parts so that's that's a point that could come in the future but uh, it's not the case right now we need really um, uh, very specific machines uh, to to etch through the, the silicon in a very precise way and yeah. um, and uh, for i think for the 10 years to come, it will remain like that. And um, about your question to make all the parts, all the components of yeah. the but in silicon, of course, we had a lot of discussion around that around, uh, in the teams at Ulysses Nada and so on. But uh, the silicon doesn't, is, is not very, um, how can I say that? Beautiful? You, you cannot, <laughs> no, of course, it's beautiful. You, you can even produce uh, dials in silicon. But I mean, it's not suitable for all components in in the watch because, uh, yeah. For example, if you have a shock between two parts, then it could uh, lead to to small uh, failures, to, to small uh, damages to the to the silicon. So you really need to to find the specific parts that can use or that can be made out of silicon. So let me understand. So you're basically saying that if two pieces rub together, it's brittle enough that just that. I guess you could call that shock or that impact between components that can affect the performance and, and actually break the material. Yeah, so uh, at the end, you have to make a lot of tests because uh, if you have a, a small pressure between the two components, then it, it is a perfect material for, for it. For example, between the anchor and uh, the escape wheel. But uh, if you have a high pressure, uh, that uh, a pressure that we could have, uh, for example, between the ratchet and the... Uh, and another wheel, then uh, it could lead uh, to to defect. So you have to, to find the, the the appropriate components to use uh, the silicon as a material. 
Interesting. So it has some some weaknesses there. Now, I understand that, again, your former employer, Ulysses Nardan, had invested in a, t- a technology they called Diamond Sill, which was a, uh, I guess, a diamond coating on the silicon. And my understanding was that this was an attempt to solve this brittleness issue, that if you could then coat uh, the silicon with a harder layer, you could solve this. My question is, did it in fact do that? Am I misunderstanding it? And maybe why was that not implemented more widely? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's correct. So the the diamond coating is very, um, uh, very strong, brittle, uh, little as well. So you need to, to find the the right uh, components again for the use of the diamond coating. It has also the advantage um, not to be lubricated. So it's a, it's a very suitable coating for um, for different uh, places into the movement, but it's not suitable for all all the components. Now let's go back a little bit to your education um, as a watchmaker. Everyone I've spoken to who really mean something as a watchmaker, didn't just go to watchmaking school and didn't just have one job, but they had a number of different jobs, whether it was a restorer, a a movement engineer, an assembler, maybe working in the repair house, before they ever got to a spot where they had the confidence to make their own brand. Talk a little bit about the different types of roles you've had and how that's allowed you to have all the necessary skills required before you can, you know, make your own watch from nothing. Yes, uh, I mean, and at the end, it's like a, it's like a, an art, you know. If you are a painter, right. maybe the first paintings will not be very, <laughs> very nice, and uh, it is, <laughs> I mean, it, it needs time, and uh, that's probably the the best answer is that you need time to achieve a complex movement, and uh, that, that could be on the on the workbench or that could be on to a computer, but. Um, for both uh, aspects, then you need uh, time to learn, to learn and to practice and so on. So the, the best answer is the time, the practice time. Now, I mean, that's a very elegant answer and I like that, but does that also mean you had some failures? You had this desire to design some movements and they didn't work and you had to start from scratch? Of course. <laughs> of course. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. As you, out of 10 IDs, maybe uh, only one works, you know, so you have to, okay. you have to start again and so on. But of, of course, uh, as you get uh, experience, then you, you know uh, what kind of, um, of concept you can create and uh, the, the concept that could be interesting for in a technical aspect and in a, in a commercial aspect as well. So what are some of the crazy ideas that you attempted but ultimately didn't lead to success? <laughs> I don't have a proper ex- example, but uh, it, c- it can be a, a small a small element in, t- in the watch or it can be um, a complex uh, movement. But um, I-, I have no, no, no example, no precise example. I'm sorry. No, it's, it's okay. It's okay. So, okay. So let's so go back to your career a little bit. You were at Patek Philippe. What yes. what exactly did you do there? I was in the research team. So there is um, a team that it is called uh, Advanced Research in uh, yep. Patek Philippe, and this is um, one of the first projects I had there. Was the um, the air spring made out of silicon? Right. It was a very important project for Patek Philippe because uh, the the um, the goal was to replace the the standard. Uh, was this part of that shared investment that they did with Swatch Group and Rolex? 
Exact. So okay. it was a it was a joint venture project between the the three big players in watchmaking, and uh, it was a very interesting project because it, it had to be very um, reliable and. Um, the, the, the idea was to produce uh, a lot of components and um, on a, onto a single wafer. So we, we needed um, a very high uh, yield. We call that yield. So uh, the number of good parts on, onto a wafer. And it was a very uh, important project at that time. Now, what did you specifically do there? Did you sit on a computer and design parts? Were you trying to you know, take a metal part and replace it with a silicon one and actually do application. I just, you know, it help explain to people what actually goes on at this advanced research department. Is it is it that advanced? I mean, you are making mechanical watches, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. But the, the idea is to come with a new concept. Okay. And the one, once we have a new concept, then you have to design it onto a computer that could be, for example, the, the full geometry of the um, of the air spring or the, the fixation of the air spring at, uh, at this center and at, at the overcoil, so at the end of the air spring. And then we have to test it. So it's a mix between IDs, calculations, and tests. What was the result of that joint venture between Swatch Group, Rolex, and Patek Philippe? Each of those companies definitely today uses silicon and at least some watches. Arguably, the Swatch Group uses it more um, than really when anyone else. But there are some small use, of course, at Rolex and a little bit more of Patek Philippe. Why is there so much shyness in implementing it more? It seems to be a technology that, you know, intelligent and sophisticated watchmakers and engineers such as yourself agree is good. Why is the rollout so slow? <laughs> That's a good good point. Uh, but probably, uh, you know, the, the Swatch Group is the, the most industrialized um, company. I'm yeah. not saying that Rolex is not industrialized. Of course, they are industrialized, but they, they have their, their proper uh, parachrome air spring as well. So yeah. um, I, I would answer that it's um, it's a matter of the, the industrial factory you have plus the, the commercial wishes of the... So the, the ability to mass produce the silicon parts? Exactly. Okay. Exactly, yes. Plus some uh, commercial aspects as well to be... Keeping because the cost down and things like that. Yes. So so the performance is there, but from an industrial and economics perspective, certain types of innovations need to catch up with the ability for this. Because let's be honest, you know, and I think it's important for everyone to say, watches aren't sold purely for the performance. If people bought a watch specifically because of its timekeeping capability, then yes, everybody would have to use the most advanced component. But because they're they're purchased for, you know, reliable use, not the most accurate use possible for their beauty, for their decoration, for their rarity. Accuracy is just one of many factors, and maybe that's the best explanation. Correct. And maybe this is a point where we can uh, now catch up to the Autrive um, yes. brand, because uh, the, in the Autrive brand, my idea was to, to reach a very high power reserve. So it's uh, the first model. It is called Honoris One. And it has a, a power reserve of 40 days. So 1,000 hours of, um, of power reserve. You know how I know that? Because Ublo taught me. <laughs> oh, yeah, really? Okay. Yeah, because they had their 40-day, um, you remember the LaFerrari? Yeah, exact. Yeah, yeah. So there was, I was I remember, like, they were very proud, like, 1,000 hours. And most people wouldn't just calculate in their mind, you know, 1,000 hours in 40 days. 
Yes, so my, my idea was to have um, a wearable watch. The, the Ferrari from Hublot, the Ferrari model is very big. It's not, I'm not saying it's not wearable, but it's very specific. It's not uh, exactly classic. <laughs> exactly. So I wanted, I wanted to have a classical um, dimension and classical design. And uh, this is what we, we have reached uh, with the Honoris model. The, the, the outer diameter of the case is 42.5 millimeter and the thickness of the watch is 11.9. So when I, when I started to think about that project, I set my own specifications and I wanted to have a very wearable watch. And uh, just to, to come back to the previous points, the, the idea is not necessary to be uh, very, very precise, but the idea was to have a, a very long power reserve. So it's precise enough. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you will keep the, the time correctly. But the, the main feature is to have a, a very long power reserve. So even if you let your watch for one week in your drawer or in your safe, then you can take it back and it will, it will work again. Now, I'm on the website right now, and uh, I, maybe you've sent it out before, but there aren't a lot of tech specs. Obviously, I know what the watch looks like, and it's, it's very beautiful. Let's talk about some of the ways that you achieve that. Now, you have a 1,000-hour power reserve from one barrel, as you mentioned. What, what is the frequency of the movement there? Yes, the, um, the frequency is 2.5 hertz. Okay. So, so 18,000 vibrations per hour. And uh, the barrel that is uh, placed into the main plate of the movement, so there is, uh, I mean, the, the main spring, sorry, that is placed into the, the main plate mm -hmm. uh, as a length of three meters. So the barrel is basically as wide as the movement. Exactly. So there is no proper barrel as, as uh, we have in a normal movement. The, the barrel is the main plate of the movement. And the space for the, for the spring has a diameter of, 35 millimeters. So it's, it's a very um, big uh, mainspring that is uh, below the watch, below the movement. Were you experimenting with different frequencies? Obviously, 2.5 hertz is not 4 hertz, but it's not 1 hertz, right? So that's a, that's a decent amount to have uh, to operate an, an, an attractive-looking tourbillon. Did you experiment with different frequencies? No, no. I, I, um, I made all the calculation for 2.5 hertz because, uh, uh, as you said, it is um, high enough in order to keep the, the time correctly, and it is um, it, it takes to the it takes it pays tribute to the to the original watch, the watch from uh, the, the grandfather of my grandfather, right? That, uh, who was the inventor of the uh, Ebdomas watch plus the the Pope watch, because in my family there there is a, a masterpiece that we call the Pope watch because it was a gift. For the Pope in 1888, and cool. uh, the frequency of that watch was 2.5 Hertz. So I, I wanted to keep the, the same frequency of uh, as uh, that watch is. What is the isochronism like? Obviously, it's not going to be perfect, but like how with a system like this, with one barrel, were you able to make sure that it's keeping more or less the same time on? day 40 versus you know day one good question the the point is that using such a long spring brings me the the possibility to uh, also i mean not me but the watch to 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 reach a very low loss of amplitude from from one day to the next day 
So the amplitude is very constant within the, within the first 30 days of uh, power reserve. So, and because we have 40 days of power reserve, it means that during one month, it will uh, reach a very high accuracy. And then, of course, at the end of the, um, of the power reserve, then we, we will lose some accuracy. But the, the idea is to wind the watch once a month. And then you have 10 extra days as a, as a security. So um, the, the precision is, um, is, is enough for, for one month. Now, I see that there's a crown on the case, and above the crown at sort of the 2 o'clock position, there's another pusher. Do you push this in to adjust the time to wind? What is the purpose of this butt pusher? Yeah, first thing is that uh, to wind the watch, you have to turn the bezel. Okay, so the, ner- the sort of the fluted bezel is this is this is this is looking like a freak here a little bit. Yes, it's uh, maybe that's uh, the the hidden inspiration I had. But uh, to be honest, the, f- the, the freak you turn the case back on the old ones. Exactly. So here in the, for the O3 model, you have to turn the front bezel anti-clockwise, and then you make sixty turns, and it will completely rewind. So wind the um, the, the mainspring. And um, that's interesting bit because, you know, we have more torque using the bezel instead of the crown. So regarding your previous question, the, the crown is still used to, to set the time, but not to wind the mainspring. So you would push in the pusher and then order to change it? Okay, I see. That's, that's, that's a little bit of an old system. What was necessary about the architecture to implement that versus the sort of, you know, uh, uh, more traditional type of crown? Yeah, yes. So, so there is a the, the pressure is really there as a, as a selector. So you push once once on it, and then you can set the time. Oh, there you don't have a, to hold it down. No, no, you don't have oh, to hold okay. it. So you okay. push once, and then there is a small dot that will appear in gold in a gold color. It means you are in the setting mode. Then you can set the time thanks to the crown. Then once it's down, then you push to the onto the pressure a second time. And then is that above that little column wheel structure? Exactly. Okay. And then okay, I see. When, when the dot is black again, I mean, uh, I'm talking about the black dial version, then it's black on black. It means you are in the normal mode. And uh, that's, uh, that's how it works. So when the gold dot means you're in the static mode and the, white, the black dot means you're in the normal mode. Now, what about a power reserve indicator? You showed me the rear of the watch for a moment there. It seems like there might be a, a visual one, but how did you decide on, on a power reserve indication system? Yeah, at the, at the, at the, first, uh, at the first moment, I wanted to, uh, to place the power reserve indicator somewhere onto the dial side, so up on, the, um, on the top of the watch. But because of the 1,000 hours of power reserve, then it was not very readable, very visible. So then I decided to use the back of the watch in order to place a very uh, large disk uh, for, the, uh, for the power reserve indication. And, and this is uh, what, uh, what I've done. So it's a, it's a disk that goes from uh, 0 to 1,000, and you can read the time using the different segments. And uh, you can also read the time in days. Because from zero to one hundred, there, there are four little segments, so you can uh, split one hundred into four segments. It means twenty-five hours, but twenty-five hours is almost like twenty-four. So one hundred hours is like four days of power. That's fascinating. Can you sh- can you show me the back there? Because I, I there's no pictures, and and I'll take the grainy picture there. You know. 
Okay, very interesting. Oh, I see how that is. So oh, that's now, very pretty. Exactly. Now it's on uh, about 700, 750 hours. That's really cool. I, you never see a... That's really cool how that's done. I, again, this is a very beautiful timepiece. For those of you that haven't seen uh, the, the Honoris uh, One watch by Hood Reeve, that's, uh, that's the model you should be looking at. Um, I, you know, I, other than pictures, I haven't seen this myself. I will eventually. That's kind of been the weird post-pandemic world as I'm learning about watches from this <laughs> essentially, no. you know, Zoom presentation where someone is rotating it on a webcam in front of me, not what I'm used to or holding it in front of my hand. Um, but tell me a little bit more about the specs. How, what is the case uh, with? How thick is it? What's the material? Yes. Uh, so the as I said at the beginning, the, I set my own specification because there is nobody uh, uh, that that will tell me you need to be uh, at forty five or whatever. So yeah, you do whatever I, you I, want. I, exactly. That's the advantage of being an independent watchmaker. So the the, um, the my own specification was to have a, a outer diameter below forty three millimeters, and this is okay. what we have here. It's a forty two point five millimeter. Uh, a case with a thickness that is a bit less than 12 millimeters. The thickness is 11.9 millimeters. Okay, that's, I mean, it's not tiny, but that's definitely not an oversized watch. You can get away with wearing that on most wrists. And and how are you happy with the result? Because kind of like if it's your first watch, you have to launch it no matter what. Of course, you'll have more. But just personally, as the first watch from your brand, how do you feel about it? Uh, I, I feel um, uh, I feel I'm very satisfied about the, the, the what we we could achieve with uh, with this first model because I wanted something wearable and I can tell you uh, when it's on the wrist it's very wearable. It is called Honoris because it pays tribute to the um, to the past, obviously to the um, to the watch of, uh, of my uh, great 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 grandfather, and uh, and that's the the, um, the model that you could wear, for example once a week or once a month for a special occasion, for a dinner. So it's, it's more uh, an elegant watch to wear, on a, not, not on a, on a, to a daily basis, but more for a special occasion. Well, for a 40 daily basis. Uh, yeah. Once <laughs> exactly. you put it on, you're committed 40 days of wearing it. <laughs> you, you can, you can. I mean, you, you can do whatever I'm you joking. want. No, no, I know, but you can do whatever you want with, uh, with uh, that watch. But uh, I wanted to have more like a, a dress watch for for, uh, for for example for the Friday evening or or for uh, the Saturday evening when you go for uh, with, for uh, dinner with your wife or your your family or your your friends. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch, with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than twenty years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. 
So you wanted you wanted a watch that was able to do two things. One, impress you, and two, impress people that see it. Yes, I uh, just wanted to have fun in the project to, to reach some, uh, some high uh, specification. And I think this is... Uh, this uh, has been done using um, uh, thanks to the 1,000 hours of uh, power reserve, and I, I wanted something very elegant as well. And this is why the, I've chose, chosen to to use a Grafe enamel dial. And um, so I, I don't know if you have the picture, but uh, we have two versions. We have one version in white gold with the white gold case and the black enamel dial. Yeah, that's and the one have, on the website right now. Exactly. And we have a second version that has a yellow gold case with a white animal dye. Oh, and, nice. Uh, because I wanted to, uh, to, to give this uh, elegant touch, you know, so the, um, it is a precious material for the case with handcrafted um, uh, dye. When you worked at brands such as Patek Philippe or Ulysses Nardon, obviously you not only helped them make watches, but you saw what they were released like, you saw what the model names were, and of course what the price was. What did you learn about watch pricing, especially luxury watch pricing, working at, at, at major brands like that? Yeah, the, the, I mean, the price has to be in relationship to the, to the complexity of the movement and to the, um, to the, um, to the end craft uh, of the movement. Because, for example, in the Honoris One movement, every single bridge is uh, angled and satinized by end. So there is a lot of, uh, of end work in that, uh, in that watch. Um, there are a lot of components as well. We have about uh, 300 components for the movement. So yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to to give you some explanation that it is not an industrial um, watch. It is really a handcrafted handcrafted watch, and the price for the for the movement is very high. So and um, this is why we we are we are placing in, uh, the brand into the haute haute horlogerie uh, level. How many pieces do you anticipate making per year for the first few years? Uh, it's a, that's a good question. It's in, in relationship to the capabilities we have. So because we have a, we are a small workshop, we will produce about one watch per month. So if you include the, some some holiday, then uh, <laughs> we will produce probably uh, about ten watches per, per year. And this is my goal uh, for for next year for twenty twenty four. What was it like securing some of the help that you needed to start a watch brand? I mean, different people go different ways, and some people really try to do it themselves. But oftentimes, you need help in terms of investing in R&D, manufacturing prototypes, assembling a team and suppliers and things like that. And I think that you and I have both seen a lot of watchmakers who met well that did it wrong. Maybe they took money from the wrong uh, people. They made promises they couldn't keep, things like that. What was your strategy on securing the help so that you can get your brand started? Yes, my, my strategy is to, to be small. That's the first point. Not to have yeah. uh, too many employees and so on. I just want to. So I'm the only employee of the company. I'm the CEO plus the only the the, the main engineer. You know. Yeah, and, I know uh, what that's like. <laughs> and and I, I want to 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 keep it small. So because I I would like to to be very agile uh, doing new projects and so on. And I work with uh, local suppliers here in Switzerland in Neuchâtel. And I know them very well. So all the components that are implanted in, the, implanted in that watch are made in the shuttle. 
just a strap. The leather strap are made in France uh, at um, Besançon because they are very um, experienced for uh, leather goods. Yeah, but they do that real well over there. Exactly. And, uh, and uh, then the rest, the case of the watch, the, all the components for the, um, for the movements are made in the Chateau with local suppliers. And that's great because not only do you probably know each component, but if something's missing or something's late or the quality isn't what you need, you can go over there and be like, I have a, a problem that I need your help with, pal. <laughs> but that's what it takes, right? Exactly, that's correct. And I work with two watchmakers. One is my cousin, so he's also a descendant of Irene Aubry, the, the real founder of Audrey at his time. And um, I work with another watchmaker who has uh, his own workshop in his living room. <laughs> so you see, we are very agile and uh, it's, it's an end craft uh, work. What is your opinion and that of your colleagues about the individuals that try to do what you're doing, but in a less expensive way and not even being in Switzerland? And what I mean is there's a lot of people out there that, you know, they have good ideas and maybe some money, but they naively believe that they can just, you know, literally put in orders for their watches from Switzerland, even if their watch has never been made before and requires a lot of R&D. Is it sort of like... Um, hey, I can't wait till the next, you know, stupid foreign guy throws a bunch of money our way? Or is it like, these guys don't know what they're doing. I wish they actually knew how to do it correctly. It's actually a lot harder than they think. I'm just curious, some of the, the barroom talk, so to say, about these, you know, these, these they are foreigners because they don't live in Switzerland, these foreigners that want to do similar things as you are. And it's, it's, it's so hard <laughs> just doing it in your own backyard. Yeah, but it's hard to talk about other um, players in the industry. But what I can say is that uh, maybe coming back to the previous question, the, um, it's, a it's a matter of experience. And here in Neuchâtel, we have a lot of suppliers with uh, um, huge experience in uh, how to produce the pieces. Right. And uh, it is the same for the watchmakers. They are very well experienced. They know how to assemble the medical, mechanical haute horlogerie watches. And it is a bit the same with, uh, with me as, as an engineer. So we, we, we need to find a good mix between the, um, the production of uh, such a complex parts and the, the engineering plus then the, the design. And uh, maybe a word about the design. I work with um, a woman here in a base in Neuchâtel. Uh, her name is Leila Rufieux. And okay. she's a she's a really kind person. She she likes to 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 draw elegant designs, and uh, this is why. I, I mean, just this is just a way to explain to explain that we have a nice network here in the Chatel of experienced people. And um, I'm not talking about all the brands, but uh, I wanted to focus on the on the local network and the local uh, um, forces that we have here in Switzerland. When it comes to selling the watch, obviously there's a lot of options these days. You can sell it yourself. You can go to certain traditional retailers. You can go to non-traditional watch retailers. What was your plan from the start? And did, did are you implementing the same plan? Meaning, did your commercial strategy have to change a few times? Or was the first plan you have seemingly the, the, the right plan? Talk a little bit about that. So my idea was to to produce or to, to fabricate a watch for collectors. It is not a watch that you, you will find at uh, many places all over, all over the, the world. So the, talking about the commercial aspect, the idea is to, to be in close contact with uh, final customers 
that uh, who, who understand what is behind the brand, who understand why is the, the price so high at the end because uh, everything is handmade uh, almost, as I said. And uh, so, yes, the idea is more to, to create a, a network of um, of um, of O3 bloggers, if I may say, of O3 collectors. So, what is the price? We've talked about a lot of we've talked about a lot of high end watches on this show. Put the put the price of the Honoris One in context. Yeah, the price is uh, one hundred and forty eight thousand Swiss francs. For uh, both versions, I mean, for the white gold version and for the okay. uh, the yellow gold version, and it is aligned to the uh, to the production cost and to the engineering cost. Now, I think it's 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 a uh, actually seen a quite fair price point given what you get. I mean, let's put things into comparison. Jean Claude Biver recently started his brand, and their first watch, which is the the Turban Carion has essentially a half-million-dollar price. They're producing about the same amount per year. Uh, again, a different complication, but again, a, a very a very large uh, price delta between one ultra-luxury watch and another. Um, you know, there are $100,000 three-hand wa- three watches you can buy for Audemars Piguet, which arguably don't give you as much value, right? Not as many handmade, uh, hand-decorated hand, hand parts and assembly there. That's, you know, it's it's a price that if you know the market, you know works pretty well. And I think that's what you're going for. You're, give, you're going for the fact that there's these groups of collectors who you don't need to explain to them um, the value proposition. All you need to do is explain the watch. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, as a function of the comparison to others, the value proposition sort of makes itself, doesn't it? Yes. Here, what you get is a is a tourbillon watch with a huge power reserve of uh, f- forty days, one thousand hours. You have the Grand Feu Enamel dial that is it is made out of a gold plate, and then uh, the the enamel is added by um, layer by layer by end. So then, um, I mean. The the, the the price value I think is is very fair because uh, I, I didn't want to have a, an overpriced so I wanted to keep it uh, on the on the on the on an honest uh, level and uh, I think this is what you get with that watch. So this is the interesting thing when you when you keep it at that honest level, you also make it difficult for yourself as a company. To grow, right? Because at some point, you know, you don't want to be doing all the different jobs. You want to have like only five jobs, not ten jobs, right? And the way to do that is to hire more people. And the only way to do that is either sell more watches, which means you have to make more watches, or or you increase the price point. You know, thinking ahead a little bit, when you get to that juncture, do you have a plan? Are you gonna sort of figure out what happens when you get there. I'm just curious a little bit because I. I love brands like yours. I want them to succeed. And I always want to make sure that there's a 5, 10, even sometimes 15-year plan. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I, I have a lot of ideas. And the point now is more to choose what are the best ideas for the future, you know. But one, yeah. point, one point is that I want to keep it, to keep it small. So I mean in, in terms of uh, volume. Because um, I didn't want to, to be uh, pushed like, by the production pushed by the commercial aspect. So if, if I can remain um, the company very small as an independent watchmaker, then uh, the, the, uh, the point is that I could, I could uh, do more projects, you know, 
and uh, not and not being affected by the production. So I'm I'm not um, very worried about doing more pieces. I just want to keep in that to keep the brand in that uh, volume. I mean, ten to twenty pieces a year. Are there brands that have been doing this for five or ten or twenty years that you maybe don't want to copy them completely, but you aspire to have sort of their same size or cadence and something like that? Uh, yes, maybe I could. I could. Uh, yeah, I could name Caribou uh, Tilainen, for example, because uh, okay, of, of course he's a, he's a bit bigger. He's a, he yeah, Carrie's got a big operation. I was about to say. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he has, he has a bigger factory now, but um, I mean, he's still remains small in terms of uh, of volume so far, as, as far as I know. I mean, and um, yes, that's the the way I, I want to to work in that uh, watchmaking world not being too too much industrial. What do you want to invent? Obviously, you need time and, and resources to invent something, but you seem like an inventive person. And I imagine there's a dream. If I had, you know, a bunch of money in five years, if I would invent this. You have thoughts like that? Yeah, for me, there, there are different topics, you know, because I, I'm not, I'm an, an inventive engineer. Uh, maybe I could say an inventor. But I work on specific topics. For example, the 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 improvement of the of the power reserve, and that's the the topic we are talking about now with um, the honoris model. And um, and then there are other research topics that I want to 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 focus or that I want to to bring on onto the table. But uh, the, the 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 starting point is more: what can I do to improve a watch? Or what can I do to improve the reliability? Um, How do you say that in English? The, the credibility? No, no, the visibility. The visibility of the of the different devices that you can find of the on the watch. So I mean, there it starts from different from different research uh, topics, and then uh-huh. I bring that onto the table, and then I start to think how can I can I improve that. How are things tested in the Swiss watch industry? And the reason I ask is because many industries, they're tested on on the consumer's wrist, right? There doesn't seem to be any background R&D in a lot of, uh, for a lot of the, the, the volume watches, someone just makes a prototype is like, okay, let's make 100,000, see what happens. Maybe not 100,000, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yet there's a different school of thought that says you cannot release it until it's totally ready. So when you say to study new solutions and things like that, talk a little bit about how academic does that get? Yeah, first first of all, it starts onto the computer because you have to make some calculations regarding the gear train, for example. Right. And um, you have to check if it works onto the computer. And then the normal way is to produce a prototype and um, to check if the prototype corresponds to the to the calculation that we have made before. And then you can do a la- larger scale prototypes. So, I mean, five to, to 100 prototypes, depending on, on the company you, you are <laughs> and your, your capabilities. But I'm, I mean, it's normal to check the, um, the, the specification onto, onto a real, real model. So, okay, sometimes, so- sometimes we do 3, 3D printed model as well. So for, for uh, big, big size prototypes and, um, and then, but at the end, you have to, to, to make a real watch and test it onto uh, the wrist, yes. Going back to the what I think is like the signature complication of the brand right now, which is this long power reserve, 
What do you want to build on top of that? Do you, A, want to further increase the power reserve, or do you want to keep that power reserve and add maybe more complications and more functions? What's more attractive to you? Yeah, I, I see that as a, as a basic movement. I mean, from uh, from the old horlogerie point of view. Sure, <laughs> and, sure. And then uh, uh, I will for sure uh, think about uh, complications that I could build on that movement. So um, that's... That's a bit uh, a teaser of the of the future of Autry. Okay, <laughs> okay. Do you think that there's a market to build more whimsical complications? Because obviously, things like smartwatches are going to win when it comes to new useful complications. But I think the beauty and the movement, and the animation of mechanical watches, always allows for. I think more novelty. I sometimes get tired of seeing the same complications the same way all the time. What are your feelings on innovation to sort of combine what we love about mechanical watches with what we love about information displays? Yes. Um, I, I mean, watchmaking is, is an art, as I said at the beginning. And uh, yeah, for example, if we talk about the, the, the moon indicators, then we, we had small moon indicators in the past, then we had we had um, bigger size uh, indicators, and now we have uh, 3D moon indicators, for example, and it gives, right. a, it gives a, an artistic touch. And uh, so I think a, a good way to answer to your question is to, to increase the, um, the artistic part of the, of the complication that you can find onto a, onto a watch. And the artistic parts can be linked to an engineering um, aspect. I think what's interesting is you have this long power reserve of 40 days and you have this very interesting solution as a power reserve indicator. But when you have something that can make such a fundamental difference over a 40-day period, you have a lot that you can play with there, I'm just imagining, right? Because you have this constant change that you you can figure out ways of making it so it looks different. We all like when the watch looks a little bit different, right? Exactly. But uh, yeah, going back to the to the power reserve indicator, as I said, you know, it's very visible, it's very readable. And uh, and uh, probably there, I know, I didn't have makes uh, so many uh, research about what kind of power reserve indicator we can find on the, um, on other brands. But uh, I mean, for sure, this one is very specific because it, uh, it's very readable in order to, to see the 1000 hours of power reserve. If you, if you had a small indicator, you could not uh, read it correctly. I want to ask one more question about the, I guess you could call them mechanics. It's really more the tactile experience of the watch. And, you know, going with the need for high torque, the entire bezel operates as the winding system. And as we know, winding a watch is something that people like to do, even if it's not necessary it, you know, we've all seen this. People pick up a watch. The first thing they do is they put their hand on the crown and they start winding it. We don't know why, but this, they just do this thing. And when you have a high-end watch, which is really all about long power reserve and winding it, I think to myself, how great would it be if winding it had that mechanical, just, you know, that amazing feeling where it's geared and it all feels nice. So I'd like to ask, what type of research and study did you do in, to making sure that the process of winding the watch felt really good and what further improvements can you make on this you know this tactile experience of interacting with it and winding it and wanting it to feel very good it's hard to describe but you know what i mean like when it feels good to wind it yeah exactly i mean here that's an advantage of having the winding of the watch placed uh, 
being uh, done by the the front bezel because if you if you if you are in a meeting or if you if you watch tv then you you can rewind your watch very easily with the watch <laughs> at the wrist and yeah. uh, so that's uh, probably that's uh, a link you can build between you and and your watch <laughs> And uh, when you have a normal winding thanks to the crown, then it's not necessarily very uh, easy to do because um, you know it's uh, it hurts your skin and so on. So yeah, it's not you, as you, fun. Exactly. So using the bezel, um, uh, I'm sure then uh, the, the the wearer can, um, can can play with it, and uh, I'm, I'm sure at, at the end you, you you will always have the 1,000 hours of work reserve in, uh, into the watch. Well, I have a watch that has a system where the bezel is geared to touch the crown. And so that when you turn the bezel, it in effect turns the crown and therefore you can wind the watch with the bezel. And I found myself playing with it all the time. I just really enjoyed that. Now, this was a okay system. It was, you know, not crude, but I wouldn't call it lavishly designed. And I can just imagine with all the fancy gears and the nice shapes, you could have a winding system where like, oh, wow, it just felt so good with every click, right? Like that's the type of thing that keeps watches on people's wrists. And I think it's interesting because, you know, the, the Honoris one is a beautiful watch. It obviously has this very innovative special movement, but there's sort of this other factor that gets people to buy them and to wear them, and it's the feeling when you when you have it on your wrist. And you know, we all pl- talk about fidget toys, fidget spinners. Well, let's be honest. You now have yet another very expensive fidget spinner. It literally is something which spins, and you can fidget it. You play into that. You know what I mean? Encourage people to turn the, the bezel and make them so they want to do it. Make it so they're touching it all the time. Again, as you said, it can only create a positive machine-human interaction. I, I agree. It's a, it's a human-machine interaction plus the, the aesthetics at the end. Because uh, I want, maybe that's a point uh, we, we haven't talked about. That's, uh, I wanted to have a game between some visible and non-visible parts. Uh, so there are some, some gears that are placed above the dial that you see it very clearly. And that are the, then there we have some uh, some gears that are below the dial, and um, only only the wearer can can know that you know because we have to explain how it works. And uh, at the end, you, you see some very, it's um, it's a balance with, with uh, visible and non-visible element of the movement. Now earlier you were talking about the sales, and you said that you want to have a connection with the consumers. So the plan is to sell directly to the buyers yourself. Yes, if it's possible, yes, and uh, that's a good uh, good point to explain uh, what's behind the brand, how the watch works, and and so on. So I, I want to be uh, as as much as possible the, the main contact with the with the final uh, customers, and they'll like that as well because they get to talk to you. Exactly, yes, and then I hope that they will feel and they will understand what's what uh, what what is the work behind, not only the the final product, you know, but. Uh, what was the starting point for the project? What is the story of the brand? What, what we have done with the movement and so on? I want to ask an unrelated question of the brand, but sort of a little bit of a what if. What if you had stayed at a company? My question is, where does your position go? What is sort of the highest level of management or position you can have at a company 
coming from that watch design thing? Because I find it interesting that so many people like yourself feel like you graduated from working in a brand only to sort of take over and do it yourself. And I wonder, maybe not all of you, but some of you would stay at the brand if there was sort of a different career path. Uh, talk a little bit about where someone like you would end up in a brand and maybe where someone like you should end up at a major brand. Yes, I think uh, I, I, I've uh, reached the highest level before at Julius Nana because I was um, in charge of the research and development. I was the R&D director. So for me, what was the, mm-hmm. the, the highest level, if I may say it like that. And it was interesting because I, I could uh, bring my ideas onto the table and then uh, work with the teams to to test it, to to um, to develop the ideas and then uh, at the end explain it to the final customer. So my, my position at Iris Nada was perfect. I mean, now the, the point is that I wanted to, to have more uh, freedom and to be to be uh, to work on my own. So that's a different, it's not a matter of position. It's more a matter of uh, what you want to do, what you want to lead as a, um, for projects, you know. And uh, this is how I enjoy um, my work. Do you think that there should be more management opportunities? Like, would you have gone higher if that was an option? Uh, what What is higher? <laughs> I mean, uh, if if you go higher in a, in a, in a, in a brand or in a, in a company, then you have more problems, you know, because you have more human resources problems and so on. So, for me, the the, the fact is not to 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 have a high position. The the fact is to to have a to enjoy the project where, uh, where where you work you you work on or you work with you know and the, the people as well. So uh, I mean now I'm very in a, in a, in in an interesting period of my life because I can I can um, do my own project. I can have the, the the contact with the customers, hear what the customer wants, and uh, yes, I really enjoy my time now. Thank you. That is a great place to end. Um, I encourage everyone to go to the uh, Haute Reeve website. It is haute-reeve-watches.ch. This has been the Superlative Podcast interview with the founder, Stefan Van Guten. Stefan, thank you so much. Thank you. And you can also have a look at the Instagram account. There are a bit more pictures than on to the website. Definitely check that out as well. Thank you so much, Stefan. Thank you. See you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at blogtowatch.com.